It's Friday, March 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Philadelphia has become the first major city to ban cashless stores. Lawmakers want to maintain access to the marketplace for lower-income consumers that may not have credit and debit cards. But Amazon and other businesses are expressing concerns about limits on innovation. Scott Calvert, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the debate over going cashless. Next, as diet fads come and go, one of the latest trends to gain traction is that of intermittent fasting. While fasting is not a new concept, people are connecting through apps to track their progress and support each other as they typically go 16 hours without eating, sometimes more. My producer Miranda once went 49 hours without a meal. Sherry Rudofsky, health and medicine reporter with the Indy Star, joins us to talk about how it all works. Finally, last year more than 3.5 million people cut the cord. And as the streaming wars continue, Disney Plus is going to be a major player. Estimates say that they could eventually draw 160 million subscribers. What people are really getting excited for is that the Disney Vault is going away. So you will soon be able to see your favorite Disney movies anytime. My producer Miranda joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What if we could weave the most advanced machine learning, computer vision, and AI into the very fabric of a store so you never have to wait in line? No lines, no checkouts, no registers. Welcome to Amazon Go. Joining me now is Scott Calvert, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Some big news. Philadelphia is the first U.S. city to ban cashless stores. We all have heard the news about Amazon making these stores called Amazon Go, where it's totally cashless. You just scan your phone, you go in, pick up whatever you want, and it charges you automatically and you just leave. There's a a few other locations in Philadelphia that are actually also doing something similar whether you just pay with a credit card or a debit card. But lawmakers there are say they're trying to protect all citizens, particularly lower income citizens. So they're banning cashless stores there. Uh, what do we know about this? Right. That's exactly right. I mean, it is still a very small minority of retail stores that are right. cashless. By and large, in most places you go, they're happy to take your, your dollar bills and coins in addition to plastic. But what happened was there's a city councilman named William Greenlee, who said he just noticed that there were a number of sandwich places downtown in Philadelphia that had gone cashless. And that concerned him because there are a lot of people in Philadelphia who who don't have a credit or debit card and would essentially be shut out of places like that. And that was the impetus behind the, the legislation that passed the city council and that uh, the mayor of Philadelphia, Jim Kenney, signed on Thursday. And it'll take effect in July, there are some exemptions. They did carve out certain categories. So parking garages, wholesale clubs like BJ's or Costco are also excluded. Rental car companies, uh, hotels, which need your credit card for incidentals. All of those don't fall under this. You mentioned Amazon Go. It's interesting because there was an attempt to carve them out as well for Amazon Go. And evidently, the language that wound up in the law doesn't quite do the trick. (laughs) Yeah, it's like almost there, but not just quite. Right. It's almost there. It basically describes the Amazon Go model, except they use the word membership. And the the catch there is you have to have an Amazon account to shop at Amazon Go, but you don't have to have a prime membership. And so according to the city, Amazon just doesn't think that quite does the trick. And so there, I think there's a concern about whether Amazon Go would be compliant under this new law. 
And this sets up the debate, really, whether you're going to be stifling retail innovation. A lot of people see this as the future. Even some lawmakers are even saying, you know, this is the future. It's not just a fad. It's going to be coming like that. And particularly, let's say in Atlanta, they have Mercedes-Benz Stadium there. They're going to be the first NFL stadium to go fully cashless. Even if you don't have a credit card or a debit card, they have these little reverse ATM machines where you can put in cash and it'll give you a card so you can be able to use it. It is coming. These cashless models are going to be popping up a lot more. City council member in Philadelphia who sponsored the bill there. And there's a city council member in New York City who has similar legislation that's working its way through the process. Both of them said the same thing, that precisely because it's nascent at this point, now is a good time to put a law on the books because, you know, in the case of Philadelphia, I don't know exactly, they don't know exactly how many businesses there are that are only accepting cash. It's basically a handful. And so the idea is, you know, to put this in place before the, the trend can really gallop along too much, too much further. But to your point about it coming, the mayor, while he signed it, I think has some concerns. And a member of his administration, who is an official with the city's Department of Commerce, when she was talking to city council about this last month, she made that point that, you know, that this is coming and and modernization is going to happen regardless of what laws Philadelphia might have on the books. And there's definitely a concern that Philadelphia will be hurt, you know, that it, it will not be as competitive and might deter some businesses from locating there. They don't want that to happen. And so the way that she was describing it is she was essentially saying she hopes that this is a temporary measure, that it's kind of a pause where it gives the city a little bit of breathing room to figure out what to do about those people who are quote-unquote, unbanked and don't have a bank account, don't have a credit card, and figure out sort of how those folks would be able to participate in a cashless environment in a way that they can't now. Because you can get a prepaid debit card, but there are fees associated with that. And so, you know, if you're somebody who has dollars in your pocket, the idea of, of having to essentially, you know, pay something to put that onto a card that you can then use at a store probably wouldn't seem like a good trade. Let's talk about how people do use cash because consumers still use cash for about 30% of all payments. And beyond that, uh, lower income people use cash uh, more increasingly. Federal Reserve put out a study that found that the cash is a little bit less popular over the last few years. In 2017, which is the most recent year, I think it was about 30% of all transactions involve cash. And that was down a couple percentage points from the previous few years. And of course, for those low dollar purchases, it's much more common. I right. think 55% of all transactions under 10 bucks were paid using cash. So cash is still very you know popular, obviously. <laughs> right. And in terms of this unbanked issue, I mean, the FDIC estimates that there are about 8 million U.S. households that are unbanked, which again means you know, in their definition, you don't have a bank account, a credit card. That's not a small number of people. It's obviously a small fraction of yeah. the overall population, but it's a lot of people. Increasingly, it's just right. so much easier now to not use cash, whether you have it on your cards or you have it on your phone, even. The trend is going that way. What's interesting, though, is that a lot of businesses, if you think about it, they really appreciated being paid in cash because they can avoid the transaction fee that they have to pay to the credit card company or the bank. And so it is sort of interesting to see a, this move away from cash. But the flip side is, as as you said, you know, there are safety issues. If you don't have cash in the store, then maybe you're less of a risk for robbery. You know, you don't have employees like walking to the bank to make deposits with a lot of cash. And particularly for these food establishments, the cashless model is appealing because it's just faster. If you're trying to make as much money as you can during the lunch rush and you don't have to count out change for customers, oh, yeah. you can sell a lot more of whatever it is that you are, are selling. And so I think there's some appeal there for that reason. Scott Calvert, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it.
choose the diet that works for you, that appeals to you. And I think one of the things that appeals to people about this is that it does have the social media aspect to it. It does have an app that helps you track what you're doing. It kind of keeps you honest. So this is sort of another way to, to track your behavior. Joining us now is Sherry Rudofsky, health and medicine reporter for the Indianapolis Star. We're going to be talking about intermittent fasting. Uh, this is one of those things that uh, you hear a lot about. People swear by it. There has been some studies that say that it does help with weight loss and increased wellness. One of the first times I really encountered this was with my producer, Miranda. She was following her progress on her app and she tells me, oh man, I haven't eaten in like 49 hours. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That sounds insane. I I, I just could not imagine myself going that long without eating. Tell us a little bit about what intermittent fasting is and how it works. So intermittent fasting is a program for either weight loss or wellness or, or perhaps even something that someone just prefers to eat along this regimen. But the idea is that you go long stretches of time without eating so that you may eat dinner and stop with your meal at 6.30 or 7, and then you won't eat until the next day at 11 or noon or even later. And what was interesting about this story is that there's a local company here in Indianapolis, Lifeomic, that has developed an app to help you track your fasting and also to help you see how others are doing as kind of an inspiration for some to go even farther than they might have gone on their own willpower. Sometimes it's also called extreme caloric restriction. I mean, you're just you know restricting how much stuff you're putting in your body. My producer Miranda actually used the exact same app, and but some of the benefits of using that is one, it tracks your time, so you know your progress as it is going. But she, in particular, was doing it with a group of friends, so that's another part of this: the social aspect. You can rely on others, see others' progress to help motivate you through those times when you're a little hungry, when you want to, when you're peckish and you want to eat something. Right, and what's interesting about this app in particular is the gentleman who developed it, a gentleman named Don Brown, who has a medical degree. He actually sees this as an alternative to extreme caloric restriction. He said that he had looked into extreme caloric restriction at one point for himself in terms of an approach to eating, and he found that too restrictive, if you will. He felt that he couldn't give up various things like pizza. So this was kind <laughs> right. of a middle ground for him that he would eat less, but would still allow himself not to overindulge, but to have those moments of treats or indulgence during the times that he is eating. Part of how this works, you know, according to research that, you know, a long enough fast sends your body into ketosis where the body starts burning, actively burning fat, basically. But from reading in the article, it says it could take anywhere from 12 hours for that to actually kick in. So that's what the research shows. And I think as this becomes more and more popular, I suspect that there'll be better and better research into learning exactly whether ketosis is something that has a uniform pathway or if it's something perhaps that's different for every person. She spoke to some nutritionist, a professor of nutrition and science at Purdue University that kind of said that this is actually the same as other dietary restrictions. It almost works along the same lines. You can do this, you can do something else. They're all kind of going to work the same. Well, and I think that's a message that nutritionists like to send, which is that the diet that works for you within certain parameters, as long as it's healthy, is really the best diet. I mean, if there's a diet that's great for someone else, but for whatever reason, you can't follow it and you keep on slipping off of it, that's not going to be a good diet for you. And I think that's a message that a lot of nutritionists within the context of maintaining a healthy, healthy variety, not overdoing it, choose the diet that works for you, that appeals to you. And I think one of the things that appeals to people about this is that it does have the social media aspect 
to it. It does have an app that helps you track what you're doing. It kind of keeps you honest. I think about 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of talk about food diaries as a way to lose weight. So this is sort of another way to, to track your behavior and view it against the context of either people you know or people you don't know. In your article, you profiled a man named Dale Brubaker, who's 70 years old, and he swears by this, and he typically goes about 16 to 18 hours a day without food. Like yourself, I think I'm always a little bit surprised when I hear about septuagenarians worrying yeah. about their weight and really, really being so careful about it. But I think just like people who are younger, people, or at least certain people in that age range, are concerned about maintaining their lipid levels or their blood sugar levels. I mean, they, they want to stay healthy and they see this as a way to do this. To be honest, for myself, I can go a certain <laughs> amount of time without food, but right. I get pretty whiffy if I haven't eaten breakfast by about 2 or 30 or 3 o'clock. And I don't know how people can do their job without eating food, but that's me. That's my yeah, body. So. My intermittent fasting always comes after dinner and then until my lunchtime. So whatever that period of it is, that's that's as far as I go. And there's a bunch of different methods. There's the 16 and 8 method. So you fast for 16 hours a day. Some people do a 5 and 2 method, which is you eat normally for five days then you fast for two days. Some do like 24 hours every other day type of thing. So there's all sorts of different ways to do it also. And obviously you got to pick the one that works best for you. Sherry Rudovsky, health and medicine reporter for the Indianapolis Star. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We're investing in technology and in content to deliver great, great streaming experiences. The success of ESPN Plus certainly bodes well for our Disney Plus service, which is going to be launching just later this year. Joining me is my producer, Miranda. Doing a little checkup on the whole cord cutting thing. There was just a new study that came out by Lightman Research Group that said a lot of traditional pay TV services took a hit in 2018. These traditional services are usually satellite, cable, telephone companies. They lost 3,515,000 subscribers last year. So people are starting to make the switch. It's unclear if they're going exclusively to streaming services, but still the trend is to be cutting the cord from these other places. We talked about the streaming wars. Netflix is right up on the top right now. They have tons of original content, millions of subscribers. There's Hulu, there's Amazon Prime Video, but everybody's waiting and holding out for the new one, Disney Plus. This is going to be a major player in the market when it comes out. So JP Morgan is estimating that Disney is going to crush Netflix when it comes to subscriptions. Right now, Netflix has 139 million subscribers, and they're estimating that Disney Plus can expect the service to draw eventually, not immediately, right. but eventually 160 million subscribers from around the world. I think I said I saw something about like 45 million instantly. Like these are all the people that are kind of waiting for it and they'll get there. But yeah, 160 million eventually. That's incredible. Yeah. Disney announced the service back in November and we still don't have a launch date. They're expecting to announce that sometime in April when they have their meeting. But we've been hearing about this since November, and they started pulling all of their content from Netflix once their contract expires. So, like, in my house, on a constant loop is the movie Moana. When that (laughs) ended sometime last year, I think it was December, their contract with Netflix died. I had to then go to Amazon and buy it immediately. So that explains why you're still seeing stuff like Black Panther on Netflix, even though that's a Disney movie. It's going to last until it's over. Disney took a $150 million hit 
to remove all of their films from Netflix. So by the end of this year, they'll all be gone, including, like you said, all the Marvel stuff. They said that the Disney Plus will be launching towards the end of the year. So think of all of the holiday viewing you're going to be doing on the Disney Plus service when it comes out. The cool thing that's happening right now is that Bob Iger, the CEO, announced that Disney is going to be ending their vault program and all of their movies, you know, all the classics are going to be on the Disney Plus thing. So they're really betting on exclusivity and availability as a big advantage in the whole marketplace. Tell us how the vault program works, because I know a lot of people hate this. I'm one of them. Disney has this longstanding vault program. And what happens is they'll release a movie It'll go in the theaters and then it'll be released on DVD for a very limited time. If you don't purchase that movie, hard copy, digital stream, whatever, within that parameter, it's gone and it's gone until they say it's coming back. So Yeah, it'll be a few years until it could possibly come back. If you didn't buy Aladdin on VHS when it came out in 1994 and then you didn't buy it again when it was re-released, a (laughs) platinum edition, you're screwed until Disney Plus starts because then they're going to unleash their entire library of everything and you'll have 24-7 access to all of it. They currently cycle 34 movies in and out of the vault. Right now, there's a few movies that you can't get anywhere on DVD or any type of streaming thing or digital. You can't find it at all for sale. So it's Fantasia, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, The Jungle Book, and Aladdin. So even though Aladdin is doing their new live action movie right now, you can't find the original Aladdin unless you own it already previously. Exactly. So all the classics are on there, but and they cycle them out every now and then. So that's what they're betting on is that people are really going to come to the service because they want all the old classics. Maybe your collection is incomplete and you want to have these movies. I'm one of those people. I don't have a lot of these movies on video, on DVD or anything like that. And I will definitely want these. And they do this. It's so smart. They create their own demand. That's why they did it in the first place. That's what they're betting on is this exclusivity, but also the weight, the heaviness of Disney history. Because, yes, everybody loves Stranger Things, but it's not the kind of thing that you're going to sit there and watch over and over and over again with your family right. like you would with Moana or Frozen. Yeah. AT&T has their own streaming service that's going to be coming on. They partnered with Warner Media. They're going to have a lot of HBO content backlog coming onto that also. But do these things carry the same weight as Disney? Not really. They don't. Yeah, exactly. So these are the things that people are really looking for. It's going to be a juggernaut when it comes out later this year. One important thing to note also is that they're not just relying on their catalog of older films. It's not going to be like, hey, you turn on the app and there's Snow White. You're also going to have access to previously unavailable Disney original classics, like all the high school musical movies, yeah. Star Wars stuff, all the Marvel Universe movies, things like that. My question is that what what about the TV shows? There's yeah. popular shows. There's shows that I used to like to watch when I was a little kid that was on Disney. I think it was called like Flash Forward. I loved that show. <laughs> is that kind of stuff going to be on there? I mean, it would be smart for them to put literally everything that has a Disney name into the service because why not? So if somebody wants to see that old show they remember from their childhood, hey, I'll go to the service and watch it. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting what happens when it comes out. Real quick, Miranda, favorite Disney movie? Currently, Moana. It is Moana. <laughs> Luckily, I like it. That's because your daughter wants to see yeah, it all the I'm, time. I'm very used to it. What about you? I love Dumbo. And I know oh, it's, I a, it's too I, sad. I, I love that movie. It's it's from the 40s, but I, I just, it's one of my all time favorites. That baby mind scene makes me cry every time, even before <laughs> I had a kid. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.